This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser, along with Jason Kelly. Now, the 9-11 Memorial Museum is hosting the inaugural summit on security presented by First Data. And lucky for us, we have uh, two individuals to talk about it. Alice Greenwald is president and CEO of the September 11th Memorial and Museum. And Frank Bissignano, he is chairman and CEO of First Data with us here uh, on site. And I have to say, um, I used to spend a lot of time downtown. And every time I come downtown, I feel like my head goes to a different place. I was here on 9-11 at the New York Stock Exchange. Alice, tell us about the museum because it was a long and coming, a lot of parties involved, but um, it feels like you folks did it right. Well, thank you very much, Carol. Um, you know, the, the Memorial and Museum um, welcome six million people to the memorial each year, over three million to the museum. And it seems as if we are striking a chord with the world. Yeah. Uh, people are coming here both to pay their respects, obviously, to make the pilgrimage, but also to learn about the world we live in. And what better place than here at the site of the worst terrorist attack on American soil in our nation's history than to spend our time thinking about how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? What are the things we need to be worried about? How do you anticipate what the threats are, and how do you mitigate? And I just have to say, my father fought in World War II, and he said to me and my family, I'm really sorry for the world after 9-11 that you are now inheriting. It's a different place, Frank. It is. It is. And uh, my dad fought fought in that same war, and uh, I can remember being down here that... uh, those days and through all the days and calling my dad and uh you know like a great american he was he was crying and wanted to come do something uh but today fast forward we're in a cyber war um you know and i think if you look back in the record book on 9-11 the cyber wouldn't have even been found you know we were talking about different types of information security and a lot of this summits around what that cyber war is like and how you prepare for that. And uh, I think on 9-11, though, you know, no one could have imagined what occurred, but preparedness by mm-hmm. lots of us. And, you know, getting the exchange back up and running was priority one. Right. Uh, we had lots of frayed phone wires and the ability for trading floors to communicate. But in a week, we did it by everybody bonding together and, and, and being able to raise the flag on that day. And the cyber war goes on today. And, you know, this yeah. is this is a place we right. love here, uh, the 9-11 Memorial, and it's a great place to have a security zone. Well, and Frank, as I was mentioning at the at the top of the show, I mean, it, it has been fascinating to take part in some of these conversations today because there is, it feels like, even given that we weren't thinking about this back then, a real sense of urgency right now. You are, you know, at the crux of global commerce, your company is. Um, what do you see out there in terms of preparedness, and what is the tone of the conversation as we think about how to protect ourselves going forward? Well, the tone of the conversation is ramp up, ramp up, ramp up. You know, there's nobody, that, <laughs> there's no room you walk in that people feel that they're actually doing enough. Uh, and people have done a ton over the past 10 years, but urgency matters, preparedness matters. I think. 
the public and private have come together very well around this subject. And I'm proud of what's happened here by uh, that collaboration. And I think that collaboration ultimately will help us long term. And we learned a lot before and we're acting better today. I think collaboration is such a key word, Alice, because I also think about when I walk around here, it is, it's become kind of a global memorial, right? Because if you go around the world, everybody's had instances, unfortunately, of terrorism. And this is a moment where I think everybody comes together. No question. And in fact, you know, 9-11 is a quintessential example. This was an attack that happened here, but it actually was a global moment. And everything is so interconnected. And when we talk about cyber, you know, everybody is connected in one way or another. So systems can go down in one place, but it goes global in terms of its impact. Well, and Alice, you know, to that point of, of collaboration, you know, we should mention that you know our boss Mike Bloomberg is the chairman uh, of this memorial, and and you and and I think having you and Frank sitting here, I mean, is a, a real illustration of the collaboration that happened between public and private for this very for this very site and this very memorial. How do you keep that collaboration going? Uh, going well, I forward? think with the kinds of programming that we're doing today, you know, that if you invite people to come here, we can convene the conversation. And in the process of having representatives of the government, we've had generals, you know, we have people from, we just had Secretary Nielsen from Homeland Security, but with people like Frank, people who are in the private sector running companies, companies with global customers, global base, um, everybody has to work together to ensure the security of all. Frank, you know, one of the conversations that we're going to play later on in the show that I was able to have earlier with one of the speakers, um, the CEO of Fortalis, you know, talked about and it, it, she gave some advice as to, you know, how do you prepare? If you're a leader of a company, how do you prepare for, for what's uh, sort of a, around the corner? What do you hear from your customers that you take back and say, okay, this is the best practice? Yeah, well, I think it's important, uh, first of all, to surround yourself with more talent than you can imagine and to talk every day to people. Um, I think also practicing you have to practice, and it's not, I said it yesterday, I say it every day, it's not a tabletop practice. It's a real live practice. You have to learn from your mistakes. And then you have to be prepared to be nimble on the day of reckoning. Um, and on that day, leadership matters more than anything else. So you better be out in front, you better lead, and you better listen. Um, so, you know, it's, it's relentless pursuit. When you think about what's to come for the museum and the types of um, events that you will be doing here like this summit, tell me what you're thinking. Well, I think 9-11 was an event that happened, but its legacy is ongoing. Yeah. And so for this museum to um, make a contribution going forward, we have to be at the forefront of these kinds of conversations. And you, know, you talked about collaboration. You know, 9-11 was that moment when the world literally came together, and Frank and I were actually talking about this at lunch, you know, people stopped what they were doing. They ran to help. The, the first question was, what can I do to help? And I think if we could generate that level of consciousness in the world about we share a common threat, we're in it together, right. let's work together to solve it. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Jason Kelly with Carol Master. We are here live at the 9-11 Memorial and Museum Summit on security presented uh, by First Data and delighted uh, at the moment to be joined uh, by retired General Keith Alexander. He is now president and chief executive officer of IronNet Cybersecurity. General Alexander, really nice to be with you. Thanks, Jason. Nice to be here. So 
you did made a really nice presentation, really provocative presentation, I should say, um, to the group earlier. Tell us a little bit about sort of the state of cybersecurity. You obviously have an unbelievably keen uh, set of insights into physical security. You've worked all over the world uh, for the U.S. government, uh, ran the NSA, obviously. Uh, where are we at this moment in terms of preparedness as a country when it comes to cyber? I think we have a long ways to go, mainly in terms of looking at the public-private interface. So when we look at countries that could attack us, um, like Iran, we aren't prepared. The government is not prepared to defend the nation because they can't really see what's going on. We can talk about the known knowns, those things, those threats that we see out there. What we don't see are all the threats that are hitting industry until it's too late. So we have to come up with a mechanism where industry can identify anomalies and share it with the government. It's not personally identifiable information. It doesn't impact our civil liberties and privacy, but it does impact our security. So we've got to come up with a mechanism. The CISA Act authorizes something like that where industry can share with companies within a sector collective security that gets better. Think of it as the neighborhood watch approach. Mm. And then share that with the government so the government can do something to stop an attack. And that has to occur at network speed. We don't do that today. We share what we know after we're sure that we don't have a liability in it and that we don't have reputational risk. This has to be done at speed for the good of not only that company, the sector, but our nation. General Alexander, are there certain industries in particular that are at risk at this point? Well, I think the industries that are at risk, the critical infrastructure, and when you so think energy, about utilities, energy, utility, and you know they actually are forward-leaning. My experience with the energy sector, they're moving out front. They're doing a great job. I think they're really pushing the envelope. But you look at the energy sector, financial sector, healthcare sector. I would throw the defense industrial base in mm -hmm. there. Yeah, you're going to look at the telecom sector and government. How do you start to build this together? as a collective framework that operates at network speed. We've got to get really good at that. Today what we do is we find a, a vulnerability or we find a piece of malware. We create a signature, and then we pass that It's out. like a patchwork quilt, yeah. I feel like. And all they have to do, the threat, is change or modify that. And it's like a barcode on a bottle. Yeah. And they change the barcode, they get through. So why haven't we had some disasters? I mean, I know this stuff has happened. I bet there's things we don't even know about as the general public. But why haven't, hasn't a, a major utility grid gone down? Is it fear of retribution, you know, of the U.S. on another country? Why hasn't it happened yet? Well, I think it's not only fear of retribution. I think it's when do you want to use your cyber capabilities? Mm. Um, you're not going to use them willy-nilly. It was, cyber is now an element of national power. They're going to use it as part of their political will to make our country change the way it's doing something, or at least attempt to do that. So up to this point, it's not in their interest to attack us, not only because of what we could do back, but it doesn't achieve any political objectives. So if you think about nation states, mm -hmm. think political objectives. If you think about... Uh, Trans uh, criminal organizations, they have different objectives. And theirs is to stay below the radar and steal as much as they can. So you have all of these different uh, objectives going on in cyber. 
China, steal intellectual property, try to get out in front. We've got to come up with a collective way to secure our country. And I think that's foremost sharing between government and industry. And how is that sharing going? Because I feel like that has been a, a key theme here. And are there mechanisms either that are in place or could easily be put in place to, to really facilitate that from your estimation? Well, so there's two types of sharing. I think we're sharing as best we can that which we know. And that goes through a process that the ISACs have set up. What I'm talking about is sharing what we don't know. We'll call this... Uh, an ISACs in- being... The international, uh, the no, the uh, sharing uh, the information sharing agencies that we have Got for it. every okay. one of our critical infrastructure Thank you. Uh, elements. They share so the financial services ISAC shares between the financial services. They share what they know and they do a really good job. In fact, the FS ISAC, the financial sector sharing uh, advisory committee, is really good. But they share what they know. Imagine. If we could share all the events that are hitting the companies, that which we know and that which we don't know, mm-hmm. the ones that we don't know are the ones that get us right. because we don't know about them. The issue is that's tough. That's hard. That's a new step. And that's a step I think as a country we have to take. It's interesting, though, and I think about how many conversations, Jason, we've had, especially about some of the major tech companies that have so much information. It includes them, correct, that they need to be involved in all of this. Just got about 40 seconds left. Yeah. So, you know, I think as you as you look at it, this is something that can be done. It's hard. I think from my perspective, the energy sector is moving out. They recognize they are at greatest risk for our country and have done a great job on it. More to be done, but we've got to bring this collective security together. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Uh, retired General Keith Alexander, now president and CEO of IronNet Cybersecurity, uh, joining us here at the 9-11 Memorial and Museum Summit on Security, presented by First Data. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, along with Jason Kelly, live from the 9-11 Memorial and Museum Summit on Security. As I mentioned, our next guest has seen security threats, understands the risks, demands firsthand. He is former Deputy Commissioner of Counterterrorism of the New York City Police Department. Richard Falkenrath is Chief Security Officer, Bridgewater Associates, of course, the investment management firm. He's with us here on site. Um, So nice to see you again. Nice to see you, Carol. We have talked a lot over the years. Take us back, because I said to you, I walked onto the site, used to spend so much time downtown, not as much, but every time I come here, it's like it takes me back. I can remember 9-11 like it was yesterday yes it, it's quite emotional to come back yeah. uh, my my first visit to the site after 9-11 I was working in the White House at the time and came up a few months after the event and it was still a, a pile and there were still human remains in the pile it was smoking it was still a health hazard and and it was an, uh, a very very moving experience to see fast forward for for me five six years I'm then I'm deputy commissioner of the NYPD for counterterrorism and at that time, this was a hole in the ground. Um, there was no, the buildings hadn't been rebuilt. They were just in plan. Mm-hmm. The plans had actually just been unveiled. And it had already been attacked twice, once in 93, again in 2001. And so we were very worried that it could be attacked again, that it had acquired such symbolic significance in addition to its economic significance that we spent a lot of time with then Mayor Mike Bloomberg um, and Ray Kelly, my boss, making sure that this site had a state-of-the-art security envelope around it, um, which it does now. 
um, and it's a very well-protected site. It's also a very functional site. And um, for me to come back here, uh, it just brings back a lot of memories of, of that time, of all the people who've worked here, who lost their lives here, uh, and who continue to make it such a vibrant, interesting place. Well, and Richard, and you, especially given that backdrop, I think understand maybe better than anyone, especially given your current job, you know, the new sort of contours of threat uh, and sort of danger and, and how complicated it is. What have you taken away from, you know, the conversations here and, and how do you feel about our general preparedness when it comes to the cyber world? Well, um, first, the, the general point is it's, it's a reminder. I mean, this site, this memorial and this museum is a reminder not just of how, how many lives are lost in this terrible crime that was committed, an attack that was committed against our country, but also the, the need to be ready for very remote possibilities that have truly uh, catastrophic consequences. So in the vernacular, you'd call that a tail risk, something mm. which doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it's really bad. And we live in a world where we've got to deal with all kinds of risks. Some of them are tail risks. They're extreme events, which when they occur are catastrophic in one way or another. And there's there are many categories of them. Now, people who haven't lived through them, forget them or never learn about them. And so there's, there's a need to remind yourself of this um, possibility. And so that's one of the functions that uh, the memorial and the, and the museum play. When you think about it for 9-11, I mean, my, I have two kids that are in high school. Uh, one of them was six months old when it happened. The other one wasn't even born yet. Um, and now there's whole generations coming through that have no living memory, no adult memory of these events. And so it's important to keep that going. Yeah, I agree. What, how has the use of things like artificial intelligence and data helped in terms of the fight against security threats? Well, it, or hurt. <laughs> it, it goes both ways. Yeah. Um, so uh, before we get to artificial intelligence, just in general, the, the, the digital age, uh, we've gone through several waves of, of innovation here and including on the cybersecurity threat. And for a while there, I'd say from about 2001 to 2015, 16, uh, it was really we were in free fall. It was uh, a, an exploding problem. Uh, very, and very few companies, very few boards, CEOs really understood how to attack it, and it was getting worse every year. It was a constant parade of huge attacks that would happen. Um, and one of the things that's happening now is the defensive technologies and the information security systems that a, a enterprise can buy are starting to catch up. And so they're starting to be, we're by no means uh, out of the woods on this category of problem yet, but there is now, I'd say, a greater kind of uh, parity of the offensive threats you're facing from the bad guys and the defensive abilities to protect your systems. It's still something that every board of directors, every CEO needs to take seriously and understand because it's one of those things that can can destroy your business, can decimate your business. If you're in business today, you're in a digital business, yeah. and digital business relies on the efficacy of these information systems. Only about 30 seconds left. Is there the sense of urgency out there right now around cyber as you talk to people in your business? I think it is. It may be a selection bias, which is the ones I'm talking to um, find it urgent, but I think any serious company uh, has to really grapple with these problems. And then in the public sector as well and government agencies they're also seized with it now what they're able to do is a different story but at a at an appreciation level i think they do understand the gravity of this problem you are listening to bloomberg business week carol masser along with jason kelly at the 9-11 memorial and museum security summit you are listening to bloomberg business week i'm jason kelly 
along with Carol Massa. We are live from the 9-11 Memorial and Museum Summit on Security, presented by First Data. I had a chance to moderate a panel earlier, uh, Carol, and one of my stars was Luke Demboski. He is partner at Deva Voice and Plimpton down in D.C., made his way up the Acela Corridor to be with us uh, here today. A wide range of experience. You worked in the government. You worked in Russia. And you're well positioned to give us a sense of where we are in fighting sort of cyber crime at this point. What's let, Let's go a level down. What's the threat we should be the most worried about when it comes to cyber? I think it's really about the big systemic threats right now. There's always going to be that wire that gets misdiverted, uh, phishing email, these types of low-level attacks have been around. But now that we're more connected than ever, the kind of attack that can cascade across the organization and worse, across a sector or an economy is really the big one. Like what? Like, I'm just curious, do you guys say, okay, folks, here's, here's the doomsday scenarios when it comes to a cyber threat. What might they be? Well, take the financial sector, and we do a ton of work in the financial sector. The banks are very inter- interconnected. You have the trading platforms. All of these things are digitally driven now. And so the right type of attack uh, could have a broad effect, and the goal is to manage risks in a way to segment the effects. Do we need something like a blockchain to prevent that? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm trying to think we talk about these new technologies and trying to really understand the financial sector is all in and trying to figure out, okay, what's the use? Is it something new in terms of how the systems operate? It has fascinating possibilities. They, I think it's really understood more on a micro level where yeah. it's, it brings uh, transparency, openness, and a decentralization to the exchange of funds. Banks and others are exploring how it could be used more broadly to bring those positive effects on a broader scale. So, Luke, I I think about some of the cyber attacks and cyber incidents of the past few years. You have been involved, especially in your government job uh, previously with the DOJ, in in helping to combat them, figure out what happened, and, and ultimately, I think, prosecute them, whether it's Target, Sony, Home Depot, and, and others, are there common threads? I mean, what is it, what is it you took away uh, from those experiences that you then advise clients about now? That preparation is really key to one's ability to respond, to actually practice being in a crisis. That's why I think the, the setting we're in today is so powerful here. Um, but that's a common denominator. Uh, another one is, you know, you're still going to be surprised no matter how much you prepare. And so uh, trusting others, having the partnerships in place and relationships in the end really will overcome the problem. What I think is below all of that is the technology. There's always going to be technical threats. It really is about relationships, communication, trust at the higher levels that's the difference maker. That seems to be a theme, and you pointed it out earlier, Jason, this whole idea of collaboration, public-private sector. I mean, everybody's really got to work together to really, I guess, ultimately have a secure system. Is that fair or? Uh, definitely. I mean, the, the private sector uh, controls more than 85% of the Internet infrastructure out there. So governments really depend on the private sector in many ways, including to tell them about the threats. Mm. Many people think it's the government's job to tell them about the threat, and that's partly true. But the private sector has a lot of the networks that are being hit. 
And so there's an effort to try to bring these efforts together more collaboratively. Luke, what about collaborations globally and internationally? I mean, right now, you know, we have governments uh, in our own that's pushing back on trade policies and things and kind of thinking more domestically. Um, the importance of countries working on a global scale. I'm seeing you, like, nodding your head. This is important, right? Well, this used right? to be my job. I yeah. used to get parachuted over to Europe, uh, to the European Cybercrime Center, to try to make these global operations work. And the first times I went on cases like Silk Road, it would be a few countries participating, and then it would be few, a few more and a few more. So the, the having the will, the laws, and the capability to participate is key. To me, what underlies all of it is rule of law. People would say, you know, you're coming to us asking us to support the U.S. government. Why is this about Team America? It really is not about Team America. It's about creating a level playing field so innovation can occur, so that a Steve Jobs, a Bill Gates can come out of their garage and be protected in that innovation rather than having it taken from them, which is what would happen in many of the corrupt countries around the world. Mm. You alluded earlier to uh, one of the best quotes of all time from Mike Tyson, that everybody has a plan (laughs) until they get punched in the face. Uh, how good is the planning uh, at this point? And, and specifically on the subject of planning and talent, we talked a little bit about black hats and, and white hats. How do you sort of leverage the bad guys to help the good guys? Well, I think it's putting on your, your Dr. Evil hat, if you will, and starting to think about things as an outside attacker using outside experts instead of your own people to tell you how well protected they are. I mean, there are these dynamics within organizations that suppress, naturally suppress risk a little bit. So it's that outside-the-box attacker mentality, and then increasingly from a talent perspective, people in the risk area that can see cross-functionally. Hackers operate in the gaps. They operate in the gaps between countries, and then within organizations, the gaps between compliance, legal, infosec, Breaking down those gaps is the key to fighting this. I've got to ask you about in terms of fighting it. When a company or an entity or an institution understands that there's been a security um, hack or flaw uh, or threat that's been actually carried out, what's the correct game plan for crisis management? Because we've certainly seen a lot of different scenarios play out from the corporate community. Um, and I'm just curious from your perspective and, and dealing with so many corporate hacks, what is the right game plan? Is it to get out there in front? Is it first deal with the problem, then make it public? What's right? Well, you start with putting your customer or your client first, making choices in favor of your customer and client to protect them and not just your own self-interest. And then the question is, how do we execute on that so we don't trip over ourselves despite our good intentions? And that's a lot of practice to get that right. My job is to help our clients reflect their good intentions to their customers and other stakeholders, to the public, the media at large. And so it's, it's practicing your communications plan. You don't, you're not expected to know all the answers right away in a hack. You're expected to convey that you're on top of it. You're going to put the customers first. You're going to act decisively, and you're going to be back when you have more information. Is it like any other corporate crisis, or is this different, though? It's, it moves uh, more quickly than many of them do. Certainly natural disasters, uh, they can occur very quickly. Some things we see coming like hurricanes and so forth, but 
the speed, the scale of this is quite scary. It's quite global yeah. in nature. It's inter- across border, and that intimidates people, and they don't understand it as much. Well, so I think rolling up your sleeves and understanding it is, is a great start. And then you don't trust the system, right? And systems start to break down if there isn't trust, and we, we see that often. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week live from the 9-11 Memorial and Museum Summit on Security presented by First Data Carol and I have been having some really interesting yes. conversations uh, throughout the course of the day. Really excited to have our next guest, Mark Hughes. He is the CEO of BT Security, based over in London, spends a lot of time here in New York uh, and here with us on site. He and I got to participate in a panel earlier. So, Mark, thanks so much mm-hmm. uh, for you. joining us. So set the stage for us because and, and maybe remind people how much you really sit at the center of so much communication and, and candidly, by virtue of that, vulnerability. Yeah, so BT is one of the largest network providers in the world. So we have the largest MPLS network, that's a multi-packet level switch network in the world, extends to 180 countries. And the fact is that a lot of the way in which the world's traffic moves around the globe transits the UK. So we really do sit on a, a load of data, a load of network traffic that gives us a lot of insight to what's actually going on and therefore we can spot vulnerabilities and use that to help our customers and ensure that they're better protected be they small customers citizens in the uk or right up to one of some of the largest big s&p 500 how many on a daily basis weekly basis monthly basis mark how often are we seeing networks being kind of attacked well all the time carol so we have six terabytes of traffic that transits our network per second so we're seeing on a normal day upwards of 125 plus thousand different types of attacks, which aren't just like scanning things. They're actually genuinely things that could turn into something quite malicious and then have an impact on, a, on an organization. But they don't. They don't because we do stuff about it. Yeah. So we spot this. We look at the types of traffic. We look at the types of patterns of traffic. And then we intervene so we can, for our own business, we make sure that we block and take action to stop those things developing into malicious attacks and also for the UK more broadly as well. I I am fascinated by this because there is so much stuff floating around the world, right? Data, information, um, voice. When you say you're tracking patterns of of traffic like what specifically do you look for that says okay we've got a problem here yeah certain characteristics of 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 the way in which malware proliferates you can see in network traffic i'm not talking about content here we're talking about the metadata the things that don't have any privacy around it they're just a way in which the the traffic the data traffic moves around our networks and certain things though attacks that are trying to proliferate in a certain way have certain characteristics of the way in which they operate and therefore we can spot those and do something about it one of the big questions that's been coming up here throughout the day, and we've talked to a lot of our guests about it even on this show, is this intersection of business and government. Um, the UK actually has been fairly aggressive, in, and you've worked very closely with the government to identify some of the vulnerabilities and really come up with new and better ways uh, to combat that. And, and you alluded to this sort of on the, on the front end. How hard was that to pull off? Yeah, it took a bit of time, Jason. So we had to think hard about how people in the UK and more broadly across the globe, but specifically in the UK, were really being impacted by this. And some of the stories are really tragic. You know, when when individuals get hit through uh, attacks that potentially strip their, their life savings away from them, you know, this is real, really hard things for people who are potentially quite vulnerable. And, you know, most people who get involved in these things don't do it knowingly. They're duped in some way. They click on links. They maybe are socially engineered as well. So we really sat down with the UK government 
And there is a, a piece of the UK government called the National Cyber Security Centre. And we said to each other, look, we've done lots of things in terms of trying to build up cyber defences in the UK, but are there things that we could do that could be really more targeted at trying to stop some of the real harm that is happening here? And we came up with a, a list of things technically and we said, look, as the largest ISP internet service provider in the UK and one of the largest in the world, could we intervene in a way which would try and protect um, the UK citizens from these types of attacks? Most pretty well all of which they never asked for. They never mm. wanted those phishing emails in the first place. Right. And then they inadvertently get, they get stung you know, by criminals acting in this way. And so we came up with a list of things which we're now implementing and are making a real difference. We're seeing a reduction in the number of these types of attacks in the UK that means that you know people are now better protected than they were before. What's the next level of cyber threats that you guys are kind of kicking around? I think about ransomware. I feel like we talked about a lot over the last couple of years. What's the next level? Well, there is ransomware. It hasn't gone away. Lots yeah. of things haven't gone away, Carol. This is the surprising thing. When you look at actually the number of different things, a lot of this is quite old stuff that is doing the rounds <laughs> again. Yeah. And so we've still got a long way to go to get our basics right to do the blocking and tackling of information security. We call it cybersecurity nowadays, but that's what it comes down to across many, many different environments. And but it's never ending, right? No, it's I not, mean, but, you know, but then there's but then the fact is the advantages that we're seeing from all the technology that we know and love and use every day, they're never ending as well. So right. there is that bit of, you know, as we improve and we all get access to better digital services and we do more stuff online, then the threat grows as well. And that was always the case, that there was always criminality around us. So we just need to be in a in a place well positioned to defeat that. Just got about thirty seconds left. Here we keep hearing the theme and the importance of global uh, of collaboration between governments, between countries, between corporations. Are you seeing more and more of that? Yeah, absolutely. And we're we're in we're in BT very very proud of what we do with the government. It's not just about doing tangible action. It's also about how do we get that ecosystem of new talent coming through as well, working with school kids to bring them and make them interested in careers in cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. So that collaboration is really growing. You know, I, I recruited over 900 people into my team last year alone, wow. and a team of over 3,000 now. A lot of them new joiners coming out of schools and college. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week live from the 9-11 Memorial and Museum Summit on Security presented by First Data. So, Carol, I had a chance to catch up earlier today with really one of the most dynamic CEOs I've interviewed in a long time. Uh, Teresa Payton, she's the CEO of Fortalis. Uh, they work across the whole spectrum of mm -hmm. cybersecurity. Fascinating conversation. Here's what she had to say. You are in the business of helping people think about cybersecurity and we're at this time where it's clear that people have to be more proactive rather than just reactive. What's your best advice for companies out there? Yeah, my best advice is, you know, first of all, take, take um, at each level of the organization, take the time out. It can be a staff meeting and just say, what's the worst nightmare? Like, what is the worst thing that could happen where either the regulators will pound us so badly, life will be miserable, or our customers will never trust us again, or huge impacts to the bottom line. And then really understand what makes up the opportunity for that worst possible scenario. And then work your playbooks around that. So the technology you invest in, how you do segmentation, the tools that you implement and how you tune them, focus them around those nightmares and practice, practice, practice. Because you'll learn each time when you practice your playbook what you're missing. You'll learn, oh, I'm missing insurance to cover that. If that happens, oh, you'll learn, you know what? We don't have the internal capabilities either on the security team or the IT team or the legal team or, or crisis PR, and we're going to need an outside firm. 
I, you know, I'm from the South, so I often say a, a cybersecurity incident is not the time to have something like a shotgun wedding where you're all shaking hands right before the ceremony. Right. And so you want to make sure where you know that you're going to need that outside help, that you make those introductions and you figure out who those partners are and you then in the future practice those digital disasters with them. Hopefully you'll never need the playbook, but when that worst case happens, you need to know what you're going to do and even more importantly, what you're not going to do. You had an opportunity uh, back in 06 to 08, I believe, to work in the White House, Chief Information Officer there. Uh, What did you learn from your government experience about that has helped you uh, in the private sector? And and how do we improve that nexus, it feels like, between the public and the private sector as it relates to cybersecurity? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because that really was a, a big, there, you know, there's several points in your career that are turning points, and that was one of, of several. And, you know, I had come from the financial services industry, and when bad things would happen, I would think to myself, okay, it must be a policy issue or a training issue. If I could just communicate better, maybe bad things wouldn't happen. If I could just teach people a little bit about what I know. And then I get to the White House, and I'm getting briefings daily on how the threat vectors being taken advantage of are changing daily, and there's multiple ones changing. And I've got people all around the world with different targets. And I thought to myself, if I'm going to stay the same, I'm going to fail at my job and they're not going to be safe and secure. And that's when I realized, you know, that that old adage of humans are the weakest link is really wrong. It, it is a conventional wisdom that we need to overturn and stop talking like that. What we need to be saying is all technology by design today is designed to be open and interconnected, right? You want that Bluetooth so you can be hands-free in the car when you're talking on the phone. You want to make sure that your phone can play music on your Bluetooth speakers. You want Internet of Things devices, checking out your front porch and making sure your packages aren't being stolen. And that interoperability and that openness by design means it's always going to be open by being hacked and the humans using it are vulnerable because of that, Mm -hmm. right? So if we change that mindset, you actually change how you think about designing with the human in mind instead of saying, okay, human, let me sit you down and this is how you do strong passwords. Okay, now don't, don't be on free Wi-Fi. Now be careful when you travel overseas. If you, if you design by design with the human in mind that everything's interoperable, interconnected, and hackable, then you're going to be thinking about creating these automated safety nets where they don't have to think about right, it. Right. Where it just happens for them. Right. And it does feel like one of the themes we keep hearing is this idea of understanding what the technology is and how people use it in order to create better uh, and better human systems. So is the government doing enough at this point to support private industry as it tries to stay a step ahead of the bad guys? I don't I don't think we can ever do enough. I mean, th- this comes down to it's crime and, you know, at a real basic level. Identity theft is annoying and money stolen, and that's a problem. But at a more complex level, a lot of these crimes are funding other crimes. They're funding human trafficking, and terrorism, illegal drug running. I mean, just horrible, horrible things happening on the planet. And so I would tell you we can never do enough. What, what I can say is I, I do believe the government every year makes a best faith effort with our allies, with the private sector, to do a better job. But the challenge that we have is, is kind of these old ways of thinking, right? So everything's focused on defense. 
we some of the other speakers prior to our panel today talked a little bit about you know once the bad guys get in they can just run around and do whatever they want undetected and that's because we haven't thought about sort of that segmentation or compartmentalization of the information all the crown jewels are right by the front door yeah. you know you think about when you go away on vacation you do a lot of things. You shut off the newspaper, the mail. You'll tell your neighbors. You have timers. Turn on lights. You might turn on a security system. And you don't say, oh, the last thing before I leave, because I know this is all so foolproof, I'm going to take all my valuables and put them right inside the front door. You don't do that, right? You still hide them. Like, people have a sock drawer. People yeah. have home safes. People have safe deposit boxes at the bank. Why aren't we doing that with our data? So just assume they're going to get in and just ask yourself, how do I create all these different sort of trapdoors and opportunities? One, to cordon them off. Two, to get alerted sooner. And then three, if they get a piece of information that they can't run laterally through the organization and collect it all. How do you do that? So that was my conversation with Teresa Payton, CEO of Fortalist, Carol. I love what she said about, I think it's a smart thing about this assumption that they're going to get in. Yeah. So if you think they're not, then you're kind of fooling yourself and you got to think about your data, your information, whatever it is, you got to protect and it. And be sophisticated about it. Use yeah. common sense. It's exactly. A, it, I think it's an underappreciated uh, sentiment in, in a very technical world. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.